good morning again, everyone. Open up your Bibles, if you will, this morning to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. Um, We have been working our way through the book of Genesis. This is, I keep leading up to it, but this is the middle point of Genesis. All right. There's 50 chapters in Genesis. It's one of the longest books of the Bible as far as chapter numbers go. And we've made it halfway through. Um, And the second half, you might say, wow, we've been working through Genesis since August. I think it was August maybe that we started. Um, And you might say, wow, that's taken a really long time. Is it going to take us that long to get to the end of this book? Well, the answer is no. Because what we find in the later parts of Genesis is there's some big story sections, big narrative sections. And we obviously don't have to spend quite as much time as we spent on in the beginning, you know, (laughs) God created and all those things that we we spent time on. So um, in a lot of these chapters going forward, today we're going to look at an entire chapter. Um, but in a lot of the chapters going forward, we'll actually look at big chunks of, of, uh, of the narrative. So anyway, um, today we're finding ourselves in Genesis chapter 25. And in Genesis chapter 25, we continue to look at Abraham and the life of Abraham. He's been kind of the main character in these past uh, few chapters that we've been studying. And, and over these several weeks, we've been learning about the faith heritage that comes from Abraham. And, and uh, I, I try, you know, to make the message each week stand on its own. But some of the lessons that you get as you study through the Bible, you find you kind of get these overarching pictures And it takes kind of an understanding of these other parts of the Bible to make sense of other parts of the Bible. All right. And one of the things about learning about faith is it's really hard for me to stand up here and in 45 minutes give you everything there is to know about faith and try to sum that all up. Instead, you spend a lifetime learning about faith and growing in faith. And as we study the life of some of these people in the scriptures, that's exactly what we see. Abraham was one of those examples where we saw different chapters of his life and seasons of his life, different hardships that he went through, different things that helped shape his faith and grew his faith to the place where we could now refer to him as the father of faith, looking back. All right, so you have to understand when you approach the Bible... There's a lot here, and there's a lot to kind of work your way through. But if you're, if you're patient and disciplined in it, you too can understand what the Bible has to say. Everybody can, all right? Um, and in this section of Genesis, we've been seeing the covenant that God made with Abraham and his family. And that goes all the way back to chapter 12, when Abraham and his family their first called out of Ur. And we've seen this promise begin to take shape. This promise this, that God made to Abraham and his descendants. Uh, last week, we saw a, a little glimpse of it. We talked about it in life groups, or some of the life groups did, about the fact that God said, I'm going to give you a people and a place. And last week, for the very first time, we saw that actually take place. He had his son, and he had his offspring, and then he bought the little piece of Canaan. Uh, the promised land. And so we're seeing that all begin to take shape. 
But even as we see this promise that God has made to this family, these people, these people of faith, what we've also seen over and over is the sinfulness and the weakness of this chosen family. You would think that the family that God would choose if he looks over the whole earth and he says, I'm going to choose one family to really pour into and explain myself to so that then it will spread to the rest of the world. You would think that God would find the perfect family. The family would had no brokenness, no problems. Everybody got along. They were all good looking and talented. They were all, it was just the, the ideal perfect family. But that's not what we see, right? Even as we look at Abraham and all of the extended family, we see brokenness and sinfulness. And to tell you the truth, that comforts me <laughs> a little bit. Because what it does for me is I say, well, I'm not one of those perfect people. They weren't one of those perfect people, but God still loved them and God still worked in their lives and, and, and through um, all of the things that they went through. And, and if they had been perfect, I'd probably be hopeless. But that's not the way it is. And today we're going to continue the theme of studying these family dynamics and what's been happening here with this particular family. Now, before we start reading, time has gone by. All right, since the end of chapter 24, more than just the week that we were here, you know, um, time went by. Sarah has died. That's what we saw last week. And, and she was buried. Isaac, their son, had married Rebecca and they had sent the servant way across the land to go find Rebecca and bring her back. They've been married. And now what we're going to see here in chapter 25 is a final snapshot of the last 40 or so years of Abraham's life. All right, this is the end of Abraham in Genesis. All right, and, and let's start here. Genesis chapter 25, verse 1. And here's what it says. It says, Abraham took another wife, might come as a surprise to you, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanach, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. Now, this may not seem fair, to our modern ears um, and, and our idea of equally sharing inheritance with siblings. One of the things that we've learned about Abraham uh, as his life has gone on all these years is that God really blessed Abraham financially. He had a lot. He had herds and herds of livestock. He had plenty of gold and silver and treasures and all of that. He had a large family. He had servants. He had animals, all of these things. He had a lot. And so when we think about it, we're like, well, this is going to work out well. He's got a lot of kids now. <laughs> um, you know, everybody will get a piece and that's the way it works. But, but you have to understand in this culture, things weren't done that way. Our idea of, hey, you got three kids and you split it three ways. You got four kids, you split it four ways. You got one kid, well, they get it all. That's not the way it worked in, in this era and, and in this, this culture. 
the eldest son in a family usually got the vast majority of a father's wealth. Everything. Any other sons or daughters would be given much less or nothing at all. That's just the way it was. All right. And so these children that we hear about now, they really wouldn't have expected something else. It's not like all these kids that Abraham had later in life were like, man, I really got ripped off. They wouldn't have thought that way. In fact, they would have come up from the time they were young all the way through thinking, well, you know, I'm not the oldest. In fact, I'm like number nine of these kids or whatever it is. There's not a chance I'm getting anything. So they wouldn't have had that same sort of expectation. And also remember this, Isaac would have been much, much older than all of his half-siblings, like 40 years older. I don't mean he's like, you know, you got a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old. All right, that's a five-year gap. That's a big, pretty big gap. No, 40-year gap. Isaac would have already been probably um, handling all of the family's affairs for years before any of these kids were even born. Okay, so there's a giant gap there. And when Abraham sends these sons out into the world, it was very different than the way that he and Sarah had sent out Hagar and Ishmael before. If you remember that, one of the first big family issues that happened was they, they basically abandoned Hagar and Ishmael. And, you know, they came back and then there was another incident and they ended up leaving. This was very different than that. Um, and, and in fact, these sons, as they went out, they were probably in their 20s, maybe, with their whole lives in front of them. And what we get as we read this, the sense is that these young men went out to kind of pave, pave their own paths in the world. You know, a sense of adventure. And as he says, he gives them gifts. Their pockets are full. Um, I, I think um, these, these young men, as they went out into the world, they thought, man, this is great. I'm actually getting a, a, a boost as I launch into life. And perhaps the greatest gift that Abraham gave these children was a knowledge of God, a knowledge of faith. Doesn't mean that they necessarily walked with God, but they had heard the stories. They had known Abraham's life experiences. And Abraham believed that the promise, the covenant that God had made, he believed that the promise was to happen through Isaac alone. And so he continued to create space for Isaac to thrive. No distractions, no competitors, no competition. Okay? Now, in verse 7, it says this. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, to the fe- in the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Roy. So here we come to the end of Abraham's life. Father Abraham, the great man of faith. And that phrase there that he died in a good old age I'd say he's 175. Uh, that's a pretty good old age. Um, and, and we've seen, though, that he experienced life of, with all the ups and downs. It wasn't that he lived 175 years of just, you know, smooth sailing with God. There were some real hard places. 
And I get, though, that the sense, the, the sense that in the last chapter, um, the, the last chapter of his life, that it was a good one. Um, that phrase there, he was gathered to his people. That's just an expression describing one who's died and is generally counted among the good people who had gone before them. It's kind of like when you hear that somebody else has died and somebody says, rest in peace. You know, you may not even really know that person, but they just say, well, you know, God bless his soul, rest in peace. That's the whole, it was gathered to his people. It is worth noting here that Ishmael, his son from Hagar, returned to help bury their father. Now, if you remember the way that, that Hagar and Ishmael went out, it wasn't a really good thing. Um, they were kind of pushed out of the family once Isaac was born. But hopefully, maybe, I, we don't know, we don't see this in scripture, maybe Abraham had patched some things up with him after Sarah died. If you, if you go back there to, to verse 6 that we already read, where it says to the sons of his concubines, plural, that's probably referring to Hagar as well as Keturah, and that he gave gifts to all of those kids. So I wouldn't doubt that after Sarah had died, because, you know, Sarah was the one that really had an issue with, with Hagar and Ishmael, um, if Abraham didn't reach out to Ishmael and try to bless Ishmael. Either way, Ishmael shows back up here in order to help Isaac bury their father. And then it tells us that Isaac then moved farther south and settled there. Here's what it says in verse 12. It says, and these are the generations of Ishmael. So now we're going to, we've seen Abraham's life. Now he's going to just give a quick little genealogy of Ishmael and then a genealogy of Isaac. And we'll go from there. It says, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Dima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kadima. It's actually harder than it sounds, guys. You go home and practice this out loud. Um, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and there's that phrase, was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. So that's like north and east. And he settled over against all his kinsmen. Now, just as God had said, Ishmael's line would thrive. Again, I'm referencing back to these other stories that we've already looked at. But if you remember when they were sent out and, and Hagar and Ishmael were hopeless and they thought we're going to die here. The angel appears to Hagar and to Ishmael and says, no, actually, Ishmael's going to thrive. He's, if you'll remember, um, God spoke to Hagar and said, he's going to live and he's going to be a great people, but he's going to be kind of a terror of a man. <laughs> and that's what we see even to the end of his life. When it says there he, he uh, settled over against all of his kinsmen, as far as we can tell, Ishmael was causing problems from day one to the day 130 or year 137 of his life. He was just a contentious person. He was always um, in conflict. That's who he was. But he did. He had many descendants, 12 princes, um, and, and a, a huge line um, followed after Ishmael. And then it says in verse 19, it says, And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. 
And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. So we saw that story last week. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. One of the things that we've seen as we've been studying through Genesis is that it's not always easy to follow God. It's just one of the truths of faith that we see. We wouldn't expect that. We would think that, okay, once I'm God's and God is my God, then from that point forward, it should be good. It should be smooth. He should bless me. Everything should go my way. I should always be healthy. I should, things should just be always, always good. But that's not what we see. That's not, not what we see in scripture. Just like everyone else, the people of God struggle and suffer. And on top of that, what we also learn is that we're tested and refined by God. So that our faith can grow and our knowledge and experience of God can grow. And it was that way for Isaac, the child of promise as well. I mean, if anybody should, it should have just been easy for, it should have been this kid, right? This miraculous child that came to Sarah and Abraham in their old age that God specifically said, no, I'm, his, my hand's going to be on him. You would think, all right, it's all going to be easy. It's all going to be good. But that's not what happened. Not only did he go through the event where he was nearly sacrificed in an altar on Mount Moriah. Again, I'm referring to all these other studies we've been doing. Not only that, by his own father, we also see that he and his wife, Rebecca, struggled for 20 years with infertility. Of trying to have a child. 20 years worth they were struggling through with this. And we don't have all of those difficulties recorded in scripture, but we can only imagine that that would have been incredibly hard for them to have to go through that and work through that and pray about that. And the only thing we see in scripture is just this one simple line that says, Isaac prayed to the Lord and he granted his prayer. I believe that years of prayers and tears were probably summed up in these verses. It wasn't that they just waited for 20 years and like, okay, yeah, we should probably have a, a kid now. Oh, well, uh, oh, you can't have a baby? All right, well, let's pray. Done. Okay, we move on. No, that's not what would have happened. They would have been struggling over this for a really long time. And I, I want to, today, I, I want to offer some encouragement uh, to you today. Because when it comes to God, 
and how God works in the world, there are a lot of things that we don't know. We just don't know. There's a lot of things that happen in this world that we can't explain. There's a lot of, of, of difficulties and bad things that happen that we can't explain. There's so many, so, you know, of our why God moments. So many of those aren't answered. But there are some things that we do know about God. And there are some things, some truths that we learn and that we can experience that, that we, we can hold on to. And here's the, the, the choices you have. And there's really only three choices with, with these kinds of things. We can choose to hold God responsible for what we think he should have done. And we can say, well, God, I prayed for this. You didn't do it. I prayed that that person would live. They didn't live. I prayed that this illness would be taken from me and you didn't heal me. I prayed for a better family and you didn't give me one. And we can hold him responsible for those things. Or the other option there is that we can hold on to what he has shown us about who he actually is. We can hold on to the truth that, well, I don't know why this is happening, but I know God is good. I know God is loving. I know God is faithful and he's merciful and he's all knowing. And he sees things that I don't see. He's also eternal and he's outside of time and space. So he has a whole different perspective than what we have. Or the third option is we just kind of get stuck in the middle of both. God, I'm really mad at you, but I also know that you're like this. And, uh, and we get stuck in the rut of being pulled back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. After 20 years of dealing with this, Isaac and Rebecca could have just given up on God. 20 years is a long time. doesn't matter how old you are. I mean, for a lot of the, the kids in here, you know, two months of school feels like an eternity. <laughs> For me, two months is gone, and I'm like, yeah, what happened? <laughs> so fast. But 20 years is a long time. They could have given up on God. Instead, they chose to continue to hold on in faith, even when it was beyond their understanding. Does that sound familiar? It should, because we did an entire message that was that. <laughs> Trusting God, even when it's beyond our understanding, just a few weeks ago. That was the same place that Abraham had come to. And that's what we've been learning as we've studied these lives of faith. Through the struggle, they learned that the promised blessing of God was not going to be accomplished by human efforts. It was going to be by his grace. And so what they did is they said, well, there's nothing else we can do. What we have to do is we have to trust God in this way. We have to pray to him and see what he does. And in this case, God answered in a favorable way. He blessed them with a child, but not just a child, <laughs> children. But even after God had granted their prayers, questions remained. And Rebecca asks a really good question here. She's like, well, hold on. If this is the way it is, I have this, this baby, or as we're about to find out, babies, because God did it. If that's what's going on here, then why isn't this pregnancy the smoothest pregnancy ever? All right, here, we prayed for this. God's blessed us this way. And now I'm struggling. Okay, the, um, in verse 22, when it talks about the kids struggling there, the Hebrew literally says, the children smashed themselves inside her. 
That's what the Hebrew says. I mean, okay, this was one of these kind of pregnancies. It wasn't just like, oh, wow, that one kicks really hard. No, no, no. These guys are like at war (laughs) in there. And she's like, what's going on? I'm thinking this is this blessing from God. Everything's smooth. No, it's like a war zone in here. And God's like, yeah, actually there is. (laughs) And that's where he explains to her what's actually going on here. That there's going to be division between these two boys, even before birth. And how they're not even going to follow the expected script of their culture. The older is going to serve the younger. That's going to create this tension in their lives for their entire lives. That wasn't the conventional path. Esau's name here, um, it it might be interesting that you're like, why did it say that his body was like a hairy cloak when he came out? Well, um, his name Esau is actually a word play on another Hebrew word that sounds like hairy. Okay, so they're like, we can't name this kid anything else. <laughs> Look at him. <laughs> We're calling that one Harry. <laughs> okay, um, and, and that's the way it is. Jacob's name means heel or heel grabber. Because literally as these two boys are being birthed, here comes out Harry, but Jacob is grabbed onto his ankle on the way out. And he's not letting go. And they're like, all right, well, we know how to name these, these two, right? Um, It was in Jacob's nature to be a heel grabber or a manipulator or a cheater. And we're going to find out that's exactly who Jacob was and all those things. It was in his nature, even in the womb. Okay, let's read on now in verse 27. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And we're going to stop right there. Because if you're reading in between the lines, even if you haven't seen this story yet, that's a problem. What we're seeing right here is we're seeing two parents playing favorites. And they're splitting the family by one parent saying, oh, this one's mine. And the other parent saying, oh, this one's mine. And there's going to be some major conflicts that are going to happen here as this family is being divided. I mean, from their birth, we saw the foreshadowing. But now as they grow up, there's a division that is not going to end well. Parents playing favorites is never a good thing. Now, I do understand There are certain personalities or interests that might naturally connect one parent with or the other. Um, But we're called to unite and connect our families. That's the, the, the goal. And you might ask, well, how is it that we do that? And I know, um, that there are a lot of churches even that do, they'll take a, a huge chunk of the year. Um, several churches I know of the, in their whole year, when they lay out the teaching series that they do, they always have a parenting series somewhere in the year. Uh, that's not a bad thing. I'm not complaining about that at all. It's great. We, we're parents. We want to know how to parent. It's important. But you realize there's actually very little direct teaching in the Bible on parenting. Direct, where it says parents do this or don't do that. There's very little. In fact, it really only comes down to two main categories. The first category is we're called to teach our children. 
okay, to teach our children. Specifically, we're called to teach our children the commandments of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 is one of the passages that talks about this. It's, that's the Shema in the, in the um, Jewish faith, where it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And then it says, And you're to teach these things to your children. When you sit down, talk about it. When you get up, talk about it. When you're walking to the, the supermarket, talk about it. Teach your kids the commandments of God. All right? That's one of the categories that we're to teach them. Secondly, the other big category is the Bible also teaches us that we're to discipline our children. That's really the only two sections that are directly, you know, in Scripture that say, of the Bible, it says you're to teach your children and discipline your children. And why, it also tells us why we're to discipline our children. It's not just so that we seem big and strong and powerful to them. The other part is that they are to know what's the difference between right and wrong. Okay, Proverbs 29, 17 um, describes that. Ephesians 6 describes that. So we're to teach our children and we're to discipline our children. But here's the thing. We can only do those two things well. We can only obey those directives when we know them ourselves. You can't teach your children the commandments of God if you don't know the commandments of God. You can't teach your child how to walk a life of faith if you don't have a life of faith. You can't really discipline your child to help teach them the difference between right and wrong if you don't discipline yourself and do what's right from wrong, right? We, when we fall short, we also need to be able to acknowledge that to our, our children. And many other things in the scripture, you might say, well, yeah, but there's other stuff. Yeah, there are other things, but those are really the only two main areas that are are pointed out. We're also, you know, generally, we're supposed to be an example to them. We're supposed to be an example to others. That's part of our Christian calling. All right. First Timothy 4.12 says, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. We're to be an example Jesus said in John 13, 35, he said, by this, all people, and this includes your kids, will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So there are certain things that are important that we are pouring into our kids, but we're all in that. We're to, we're to be trying to unite our families, to draw them together, to bring people to one place. Favoritism is doing the opposite of that. It's sending people to their opposite corners. And the primary thing that we're to be connected around isn't the fact that he likes to hang out in the field and he likes to stay back at home. That's not the main thing. The main thing is that we're to be connected around faith, a shared faith. That's to be the central unifying factor in a family. My three girls all have very different personalities. All three of them. Um, it was even more pronounced when they were younger. Um, they also have different interests and different ways of seeing the world. The very same life experience will come into the lives of my three girls, and they each one handle it very differently. The way that they'll respond to it or react to it will be different. The way they'll remember it will be different. <laughs> the way that they describe it to someone else will be different. They're unique in that way. And I want to help them to become the unique person that God has created them to be. 
no matter how that um, plays out. But I also want them to know clearly what it is to be a person of faith. That's my, that's my big thing. No matter what they do, where they go in life, my greatest desire is that we would always be united in our love of God forever. When I say forever, I mean forever, forever, <laughs> right? That's the goal. That's the main thing. And even though that's my desire, that doesn't guarantee that's how things will be. But that's to be our goal. Each person that God has given life to has the ability to choose their own path. And I, I understand that because I know that I I'm, could be hitting on some chords in people's hearts right now. That they're like, but my kids aren't living that way. I tried to do this. I tried to do that. I, I realize, guys, I, that's not always the way it works. But we need to know at least what target we're aiming for. Isaac and Rebecca each made the mistake of choosing to focus on the differences of their children and chose one child to love over the other. And what we see is it created dysfunction and brokenness in the family for the rest of their lives. Because it seems, as you read this and look at it, it seems like Esau was, he was just, he was full of energy. He was the hunter and the outdoorsman. But Jacob was the opposite. He was quiet, maybe a little bit introverted, stayed in the tent, close at home. Isaac loved Esau and talking about hunting. Rebecca loved Jacob and, I don't know, shared cooking recipes. <laughs> but what needed to happen was not that, that Jacob needed to be more like Esau or that Esau needed to be more like Jacob. What needed to happen was for them to come around together the things of God. To, to be united in that way. Still doing the things that they were interested in, but still coming together in that way. But they didn't. And that's what we're going to see here in this last section that we read as we finish up here today, looking at verses 29 to 34. Here's what it says. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. This is a nickname for Esau. Sometimes they called him Harry. Sometimes they called him Red. If you notice before, he was also, when he came out, not only was he hairy, he was also red. <laughs> um, scholars believe he probably had red hair. Um, and so he comes out, and, and here now, we're also going to see that this red stew makes a difference too. All right. Um, and Jacob said in verse 31, he said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So here's what's going on. Esau is focused on lunch, and Jacob is organizing his retirement portfolio. <laughs> okay, these two boys could not be any different. And what they're focused on, what they're interested in, and what they're doing. And over the top, Esau comes barging in, and he's just, you know, with all of his grandiose language, I'm starving. If I don't eat right now, I'm going to die. And Jacob, being all collected and scheming, he's like, oh, really? Hmm, this is a good opportunity for me. Because he really is this desperate right now, and I've got this really good stew. I know what will move 
you know, my brother here. I know what Esau is really after. So I'm going to take advantage of these impulsive tendencies. And what is he after? He's after the birthright. It's not like they're having a conversation about the birthright. It's doubtful that this has been an ongoing conversation. Jacob just pulls it out of the air. And Esau doesn't even see it coming. He's like, whatever. What's that to me? I'm going to be dead. And Jacob says, yeah, you're right. You know, you are. You're about to starve to death. And boy, this stew is good. So since we're on this subject and you're going to be dead anyway, why don't I just take your birthright? And Esau's like, all right, whatever. I don't care. I'll sign it away. Just give me that food. And so Jacob just keeps serving up the stew. As much as you want, brother. I'll take care of you. Oh, you want some bread with that? Here. Eat up. Drink up. It's all good. But what was the birthright? That was the right of the oldest. Remember, Esau is the oldest. He came out first, even though it was a split second first. Jacob by the heel. But, but Esau came out first. And with it came the greater inheritance. So he jumps on it. It says he despised his birthright, that Esau despised his birthright in the sense that he didn't recognize its value. And he traded it for his desire of the moment. Now, as we'll see later, the promise of God will pass through Jacob's line. But here, Jacob's not a representative of God. He's actually more like a representative of the devil, This is a picture of the human condition when we look at what happens here with Jacob and Esau because we're tempted by our own desires and the devil. And we're tempted to exchange the valuable relationship that we have with God for the temptations and the desires and the needs of our flesh, of what we want right now, right this minute. That's what happened here. Esau was just like, I don't care about anything else. Just give me what satisfies this appetite right now. Nothing else matters. And that's where he was fixated. That's where he was focused. But we need to wake up to the deception of that that will rob us and ultimately destroy us. Don't be an Esau. Romans 6, 11 to 14 says this. This is describing the mindset that we as Christians want to have. It says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Esau's passion for immediate gratification made him lose sight of what really mattered. And that's the same thing that took down Adam and Eve. It's the same thing that caused Cain to want to kill his brother, Abel. And it just goes on and on and on and on up to modern times. We see it all the time. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done this. In the grand scheme of things, Esau would be secondary to Jacob. God had already said it. Even if he hadn't done this. But he suffered loss, real loss because of it. And their relationship would be strained, as we'll see, for the rest of their life because of this 
incident that happens right here. So when we back up and consider these things as we finish here today, what can we learn from this story? How can we apply these things to our lives? How can we avoid the pitfalls of this family and these relationships? Here's just a couple ideas for you on this. I think one of the big ones that we see here, it's important for us to commit to pray and seek God for our whole lives. That might sound like the most basic church answer ever, but that basic church answer is going to help us navigate the things that come through in life in a way that nothing else can. God wants you to flourish. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to be healthy and whole and have an abundant life. That's exactly what Jesus said. He said, I came that they would have life to the full. He wants us to have that life. But he does not force that life upon any of us. And so we can get so blinded by the things of earth that seem like they're a really good idea. Seems like that's really going to fill me up. It's really going to make me the person I want to be. It's really going to make me whole. It's really going to satisfy everything I want. And then we go down those paths and we realize it was a lie. It was empty. I didn't get filled up like I thought I would. That's not where abundant life is. But what God wants to do is he wants to guide us through and help us navigate those things and make those choices that lead to life, not that lead to death. And what that includes is leaving the sin that we think is going to work. Why? Because a lot of times, I mean, sin, especially the good ones, they feel really great for a minute. (laughs) Sometimes more, but they don't last because sin always, always, always leads to death. But instead, what he's trying to help us do is avoid those things so that we can have the life that he's calling us to have. A life of faith is the best life. So if things are good in your life right now, pray and seek God. If things are bad in your life right now, pray and seek God. Let him guide your life. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I think this is a call, too, for us to recognize that our families should be united and try to unite your family in faith. No matter what your role is in the family, this isn't just for parents. This is for kids. This is for anyone who's in a family relationship. And that's all of you. No matter what your role or position is in the family, your faith can grow the family in ways that nothing else can. And your faith can grow the faith of others in your family. Have you had conversations with your family about faith? It's a a question to ask yourself. And can this be a place where divisions in your family can be overcome? If not everyone in your family is a person of faith, pray for their salvation. Ask God to draw them to him. Family dynamics are not easy. I know that. I see that in my family, my own family. I've seen it in your families. It's not easy, but God will guide us through them if we'll allow him to. And so as we finish here today and I pray um, for us, one of the things I'd like to pray for this morning is just pray God's blessing over our families and pray for the, the, the things that are happening. I know right now that there's several of you that have all kinds of issues happening, whether it's in marriages, in, in our 
our immediate church family or its extended family, siblings, cousins, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, any of that. It may be in other, the adopted families that we have, right? The people that we're close to. There's lots of things going on. And and I think that uh, as I finish here today, that's how I want us to pray. So pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word today. And Lord, um, it is on my heart, Lord, and I believe it's, it's from what we see here in your word. And, and the thing that's on my heart is just uh, the families, the family unit. And Lord, um, I know that we have lots of different types of families. And, and I'm, I'm wanting to pray right now for all of them. It doesn't even have to be blood families, blood relationships, but all the different families that we're a part of, the, the, the dynamics of people, living with people and connecting with people, relationships. Lord, I pray today that you would bless our families. God, I, I ask that you would guide us as we navigate these waters. Lord, I, I pray today for the marriages that are represented here in this room and in this church. I ask, Lord, that you would bless those marriages. There may be some deep wounds and some really hard places in people's marriages right now. But I pray, God, that today you would do a work, that you would heal. I pray that you would soften hearts. I pray that you would help Marriages flourish and grow and get healthy. Even if they're on the very end or in a very, very dark place, a bad place, Lord, turn it around. Bring it back. God, I pray today for those in our family of faith here that are married to unbelievers. And there are several. And Lord, I pray for them today. I pray for their spouses. God, I pray that you would have mercy, that you would bring salvation to the spouses that are, are, are non-believers, that are not walking with you. Lord, open their eyes, open their hearts, and allow that believing spouse to just pour the love of Jesus into them. Bring salvation, bring transformation. Lord, I pray also for estrangement, people that, that may have a sibling or a, a relative that they, they haven't been able to talk with, maybe for months, maybe for years, maybe for decades. And Lord, if there are places where you want to unite and unify and heal, Lord, that that would happen. That it would be done in your timing and in your way, Lord, because we can't figure all this stuff out. It's so complicated. It's so hard. It's so raw. It's so painful. But you can, Lord. And so we come to you and just ask that your will would be done. And also, Lord, um, today, I, I just pray, God, for, for our community. I know that as I give a message like this today, that there are so many people in our community right around us right now that are struggling. And so many people that need you that do not know you. And I pray, Lord, that today you would bring salvation and transformation into the lives of people around us and that we would be involved in that in some way. Lord, make us a people that can share our faith, a people that can speak truth and love into hard situations. And we pray, Lord, that in it, you'd be glorified and you'd be lifted up. 
And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.